Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11 this morning. And if you are taking notes or looking at the bulletin, the text is actually 1 through 53. But John chapter 11 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, it's page 897 in the Blue Pew Bible. And before we begin and read the text, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your majesty, for the fact that you are a beautiful Savior, compassionate and loving And you are the Lord. As Pastor repeatedly reminds us, you are alive. You are real. And Lord, we appeal to you that you would speak to us, to each of us here today. That your Holy Spirit would move in and through your word. That it would reach out to all of our hearts. And Lord, I pray you'd take this message that you've laid on my heart, Lord, and that you'd change my heart with it and that you would change hearts in attendance today, those listening. We just pray that you would most of all be glorified and receive glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin, I want to kind of set the stage. Sorrow and grief, pain and loss, the text today the text today is a is a I can use this mic if you need the text today is heavy and we don't want to shy away from the heaviness of the text not everyone is in this place that we see in John chapter 11 of sorrow and grief. So not all of us will feel this message the same way, but this is a story designed, and it's a true account, designed to show us who Jesus is. And so we need to enter into this account, and I want to do it by focusing on the emotions that are rampant throughout the the account and how easily that can be Shared by many of us in this pew. So, how many of us here today have experienced sorrow or grief or pain or loss? We don't even have to raise hands. Everyone has experienced that to some degree or the other. What about anger or frustration or even rage? We'll see some of those emotions even in this text today. These emotions are appropriate reactions to the many heartaches and tragedies and trials that we face here on earth. Sadly, just yesterday, there was another tragic mass shooting in our country. This time, it was Jewish people attending a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Eleven people lost their lives, and six others were wounded. And in our fallen world, that just flows over our head. We don't even hardly think about it. It happens so often. 
Just a few weeks ago, a tragedy of a different kind struck the family of one of my aunts. Her brother lost his life to cancer. One minute, he was living a normal life with no symptoms. And the next, he collapsed at his workplace and was put on life support and barely conscious. Just a short time later, and within one week, he died. How unfair, how tragic, how sad, devastating, gut-wrenching. This would be your reaction and mine if it was your husband or your wife or your child who was shot, gunned down, who was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, who lost their life in a car accident, whatever the case may be. But it's not just loss of life that draws such a strong emotional response from us, is it? Who hasn't experienced the pain of rejection or betrayal? Loved ones who are lost, wayward children, divorce, broken homes, fatherless children. These are tragic in their own right. In today's sermon, we are going to meet some people in the midst of very deep grief. And we will find Jesus at work in their dark situation. And even sharing the deep sorrows himself. Now, this kind of grief often leads to despair. And the message of Christianity declares that God cares about our sorrows. But our sinful hearts and the fallen world, they combine to entice us to stop believing that God listens or that God cares. Instead, there are plenty of worldly pleasures available for us to dull our pain, to insulate us from the tragedies of life. Why not just slink away and stop trying? Isn't God to blame anyway? If he really cared, wouldn't he have done something? It is exactly these questions that we see in this story from John chapter 11. Today, may God's word in the gospel shed light on our pain today through this account. May we be spurred on toward a lasting faith in our loving Savior as we look at this text together this morning. Now, I'm going to start reading from verse 17 and read through verse 37 to begin this morning. And the title of the message is, at the end of our reading here, See How He Loved Him. But we'll start at verse 17 of John chapter 11. And I want you, when we read this, to just enter into the story if you can and try to picture yourself, try to picture what's happening here. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem. This is a village. was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, 
I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. Now, I didn't read the whole story, and probably most of us here know what, knows what comes next. But I want to tell the story as a story. The Gospels were written in story form, and if we look at the story closely, we will perhaps gain more from it than just a list of points that we can pull from it. We will look at the story here from the vantage points of different groups of characters as we build toward the climax that John is writing here in his gospel. Um, So the first main point, if you do want to take notes, is a sorrow scene. A sorrow scene. And we're going to look through the eyes of different characters at this sorrow. And the first bunch of characters I want to focus on are the ones who said those words in verse 37 and verse 36. See how he loved him. It's through the eyes of the mourners from Jerusalem. So we first see these people in verse 18. So we're told that Bethany, which is a small village, was about two miles away from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So many people came from Jerusalem. That's what the word Jews often means in John, is people from Jerusalem. And they came to Bethany because Mary and Martha, their house was, they were well-to-do. The next chapter we'll see that Mary anoints Jesus, and it's with a very costly ointment, 
And that ointment would cost one year's wages, and she just breaks it on Jesus and gives it all to him. They had money. They had standing. They were a significant family. And it says that many of the Jews had come. Now, the custom in that day was to, at the very least, even the poorest of the poor person would at least have some flute players and some professional mourners, like at least one person to help them in their funeral. And here for Mary and Martha, there are many people. And it seems from the text, we don't get the sense that these are just people just calivanting around and, you know, just pretending to cry. These are people who seem from the text to be deeply moved as well. They're not putting on a show. They really are there to console Mary and Martha. They do care about the fact that Lazarus, their brother, has died. And the mourning is sincere. The mourners knew who Jesus was because in verse 37, they said he opened the eyes of the blind. They're not saying now he claimed to have opened the eyes of the blind, so he should have been able to do this. The, the, the popularity around Jesus and the accounts of his, his healings were building towards a climax. He's just a few days away from the last week of his life. And in fact, we'll see later that in the end of chapter 10, he had removed himself from Jerusalem altogether because of how popular he had become and because he wanted to wait until it was the right time. So these people, they knew about Jesus. They believed that he was a miracle worker. They believed he had opened the eyes of a blind man, which was unheard of. No one ever claimed, and no one ever pretended that they had healed a blind man in all of antiquity. It was astonishing the power that Jesus had to open the eyes of a man born blind. And they rightly wonder, couldn't he have saved his friend Lazarus if he had been here? They saw Jesus weeping when they saw the interaction with Mary, and they concluded that he loved Lazarus and his family very much. See how he loved him. They wondered aloud, could Jesus not have prevented this man from dying? Often we think the same way, don't we, in our Sorrows and in our pains, couldn't God have stepped in? Couldn't there have been a different outcome here? Why didn't the friend of Lazarus show up and save him from this untimely death? We shall see that Jesus actually could have healed Jesus, healed Lazarus. The text is very clear that Jesus, if he had been there, Lazarus would have been alive. But this view of Jesus as a miracle worker, a teacher, a great man, underestimates who Jesus really is. And we shall see Jesus is much more than just a wonder worker and a compassionate teacher. He's the Savior, truly equal with God. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this is the mourners. They're sitting there and they're watching. There's many people there looking and wondering about Jesus. Then look at the uh, through look at this sorrow through the eyes of Martha and Mary. And to do that I'm going to read a few more verses of the story here. We'll start in verse 1 of the chapter now. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So that's kind of confusing. And that's the backdrop for Martha and Mary. They, they loved Jesus. They were close followers of Jesus. We have already learned about them from other accounts. We learned in the story in Luke chapter 10 that uh, there's a scene where Jesus is at their house. And you know the story about Martha and Mary Martha's busy in the kitchen. She's busy getting the servants ready. She's busy getting the table set. She's busy making sure everything is in order. And Mary, where's Mary? Mary is at Jesus' feet, listening to the teaching. And Martha says, Lord, Mary should be helping me. And and Jesus says, no, Mary has chosen the better part. So we know a little bit about them already. They're close, they're close enough to know where Jesus is hiding and where no one else knows where Jesus is, but they know where he is. And they get a message to Jesus, and they don't even say his name. They say, the one you love. So they're really close to Jesus. They don't even ask for him to come because maybe they believe he can heal from a distance, which they've seen that already in his miracles. Maybe they're trying to, if the message gets intercepted, not um, you know, get Jesus in trouble with the authorities because there are uh, those concerns already. Maybe they are just humble and trusting God that we'll let him know and we believe he's going to heal him. He, he'll come. We won't even have to ask him to come. So they sent this message and they love Jesus and he never came. And in fact, uh, they had to have a funeral and a burial. Still no Jesus. I thought he loved us. If he had been here, he's got to have some reason. But if he had been here, Lazarus would have been healed. But he wasn't here. And now we're missing our brother. It's been four days since he died. They had to have sent the message before that. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a long time. And now they are sad and troubled. Jesus didn't come. So they expected Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. But Jesus didn't come. How often do we have that same experience ourselves? I expected that God would heal me, but he didn't. I expected that this would happen, and it didn't happen, even though I prayed so long for this to happen. They still believe, and we'll see that as they interact with Jesus. They're not accusing him. They're not mean towards him. They are still believing in him, but they are brokenhearted. They had been desperate for their prayer to be answered. And to them, it wasn't answered the way they wanted. 
And what's very interesting in this account is both sisters say the exact same thing to Jesus. Maybe they had been talking with one another and it was both on their hearts. But when each of them individually meet Jesus, they each say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But it's a personal thing. It's not our brother. It's my brother. Each of them have this personal longing and wondering, why didn't you answer? Why didn't you come? This is eating at them both. They believe, but they wonder why. Why weren't you here? So we see, first of all, Martha. Martha approaches Jesus and she adds... And this is just a very faith-filled statement towards Jesus, I believe. She adds in verse 22, But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus wasn't there when she wanted him. But even now, she knows that Jesus is still something special. She doesn't understand completely who Jesus is. And Jesus is going to teach her even more and show her more. But she's faithful to that truth that she has. She knows Jesus could have rescued her from the trial, but he didn't. But she still believes him anyway. Now, we know how the story ends, but Martha doesn't yet. Remember that. She's still believing even though she doesn't understand the why. Some people don't understand the why and they stop believing and they run away from Jesus. But not Martha. She's still believing. Martha is then challenged by Jesus. She's given more truth and given hope that should help her in her trial. He says, um, your brother will rise again. Which almost sounds like just one of those Christian platitudes people love to give. And she says, no, I I believe that he's going to rise again in the last day. And Jesus says, yes, and I And the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And we'll look at that more later. So Mary then, after Jesus gives that additional statement, she goes even further in her confession of faith in Jesus. And she gives what may be the fullest and longest confession of faith that anybody gave about Jesus before his death and resurrection. Even better than what Peter said. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Put three things together. He's the anointed one, the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's the Son of God, this divine figure that she still doesn't quite understand. And he's the one who's coming into the world. Fulfillment of prophecy. All of this together. This is who Jesus is. She's still believing that. And yet the fact that John is writing this tells us she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't see exactly that Jesus is even more than that. So that's Martha. Jesus, does, Jesus challenges her and moves her towards more faith. Gives more revelation at her in her time of trouble. But he doesn't do that with Mary. Mary meets Jesus, says the same words, and then throws herself at his feet and is just broken. Now, Mary, um, she likes Jesus' feet. 
She's at them a lot. She sits at his feet for teaching. She sobs at his feet in sorrow. And then the next chapter, she kisses his feet in love and belief in the resurrection of Jesus to come. So she's always at his feet. She has a very strong faith in him, but she's broken. And it's when Mary is broken that Jesus is broken. Jesus wept. Jesus doesn't challenge her. Instead, he weeps with her. See, Jesus knows just what every person needs. Some people, in their grief and in their sorrow and in their trial, they need a word of truth. And some people need a ministry of tears. Some people need a shoulder. Some people need a message. And Jesus knows which is which. And he is comforting her and deeply moved by what he saw, as we'll talk about in a bit. So that's the eyes of Mary and Martha. They're there, they're, they're waiting, they're at the tomb, and they're broken. And then, through the eyes of the disciples, we don't have a lot of time to develop their point of view, but in chapter 10, verse 39, it says, They sought to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Which, interestingly enough, in John 1, verse 28, that was the place called Bethany. And so that's why when he talks about this Bethany, he says where it is, it's the other Bethany. And um, it says where Jesus was, he was doing signs, and many believed in him there. Verse 42. So the disciples are with Jesus, and they are safe. They're not under threat of arrest. And so then in verse 7, when Jesus, after he gets this message, he says, let us go to Judea again after waiting the two days. The disciples kind of fight back at that. Wait a second, God. Don't you know that they're trying to stone you there, Jesus? They're trying to stone you. And Jesus tells them that Lazarus is asleep and they don't get that. And he says, okay, he's dead And they still don't really get, okay, so he's dead, but he's going to wake him up. What does that mean? Instead, they they say something which is ironic. Thomas says, okay, let us also go that we may die with him. Which is ironic because when Jesus does go to his death, none of them go with him. They all run away. But they all eventually will die for him. So it's ironically prophetic. The disciples are somewhat clueless, which is often what we see in the accounts in the Gospels of the disciples. So they don't get what Jesus is saying, but they know something is up and Jesus wants to come back. So those, that's the sorrow. That's kind of the back. The stage is set now for point, main point number two, a Savior sought. Who is this Savior that they were looking for and hoping he would be there and now he's here? Well, when we look at through the eyes of Jesus, what he says and why he's doing what he's doing, we see, first of all, that background, that area that I said that they were at is likely four days away in an area called Batania, which is a, the, different, the more normal spelling than the one that John chooses for Bethany. And it's likely a four-day journey. 
There's another place it could have been that people think in either place where Jesus was, basically, if he had turned around as soon as he got the message and rushed to Bethany, he would not have made it before Lazarus died. But he decided to not run away and go back and try to get there. Instead, he waited two days. And the reason that he waited was to make sure that the miracle would be that much sweeter, that much fuller, and that much more amazing, as we'll talk about in a bit. So Jesus, he has a plan, a motive for what he's doing. Because when he first hears about Lazarus being sick from the message, he says... This is for the glory of God, verse 4, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's a motive behind what he's doing. This is very similar to John chapter 9, where they say, why was this man born blind? And Jesus says, so that the works of God could be manifested in him. There's a purpose. This sickness has a purpose. We don't see the purpose. Martha and Mary had no idea about the purpose, but there was a purpose. In your trial, you may not know why God didn't answer, but there is a reason why. God knows why, and Jesus does too, since he is God. So Jesus waited two days for a very clear reason, which the text will show us. Now, finally, he's here. Let's look at this. We saw this a little bit, but with Martha, Jesus is the counselor. He responds to Martha with counsel and teaching. He instills hope and challenges her to a greater level of faith. He speaks truth to her in her trial. And I want to look at verse 25 and 26 again. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Resurrection, I am the resurrection, corresponds to the part that says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though you physically die, you will live again, because Jesus is the resurrection. And he's the life, and that speaks to the next part. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So believing in Jesus gives a life that makes it so that you don't actually die. In some sense, you don't die. In John, if you make a study of the word life in John, it's very fascinating in John and in the epistles of John, It is not talking about eternal life as this thing that happens when we die, we get eternal life. This time way out there. In John, it's a quality of life you have now that continues on and on. In fact, in John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life that you may know God and the one that God sent. So it's an experience of abundant life with God now and forever. So people who believe in Jesus, they are people who are living. And because they're living in that way, physical death can't stop that. They're not going to die. So Jesus has a rich, deep revelation of who he is to give to Martha. But then he says, do you believe this? 
He calls her to faith. He doesn't just give truth for truth's sake, but he calls her to respond, to grow in faith. Do you believe this? And then Jesus responds to Mary a different way. He's the comforter for Mary. He weeps with those who weep. Jesus knows that Mary doesn't need truth-telling, but rather sympathizing and love. Jesus is fully human and able to share her sorrow. He's also fully God in the resurrection and the life, and we'll see his power in a minute. But Jesus was able to blend unlimited power with being able to weep with someone at the tomb. And those, those qualities merged in one. He's the God-man He's fully God and fully man. And he's the high priest that we need, so he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. But one other aspect before we jump into the rest of this story. Jesus is also a warrior. Jesus responds to the blackness of death with anger and rage, coupled with sober determination And you say, okay, that's right, but what are you getting at? Well, first of all, the word deeply moved in your text, if you are using the Pew Bible, um, there is a little footnote there. And footnotes are valuable, so always look them up if you can. There's a footnote there, and it says, so he was deeply moved, footnote, or was indignant, an alternate translation. The same word. And what we find in studying this is that most scholars believe that the word is very, very clear in its definition. It means anger or outrage. And so deeply moved in spirit is just doesn't really capture all that that word has for us. Very few translations bring this out. The New Living Translation and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the message, they do a little bit. But the Greek word, according to D.A. Carson, involves anger or outrage or indignation. And Tim Keller translates this, this phrase as to bellow with rage. The word is used of horses to snort this anger, this intense, sudden, violent anger. Okay, so if Jesus is outraged, why? What is he outraged about? What is he angry at? The context, to me, is very clear. He's angry at the tomb. He's angry at the death. And the sin which causes death and causes unbelief and causes so much suffering and anguish in this world. You see, as the text will very clearly point us to, when Jesus looks at that tomb, he's seeing his own tomb. When Jesus sees that dead man three or four chapters later, that's him. Jesus is that close to his death. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Jesus was angry at the intrusion of death and the reality of death the blackness of death. Don't think for a minute that God is just up there and you're in sorrow and too bad. God doesn't really care about the deepness of your sorrow. He cares. He wept. But not only did he weep, he is outraged 
that this world has such tragedies happening in it because of sin. People in, in suffering, they, they say, why, if God really was here, if Jesus really was God, why didn't he do something? He did. And he will do something here with his anger. And he will do something when he faces death head on and defeats the devil just a few chapters later. So Jesus is a warrior looking at death in the face. So now we get the miracle. Let's read from verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Same word. He's angry again now that he's right at the tomb. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? And then skipped on to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So now we have the third point, a salvation signified. This miracle is a sign. It's an amazing sign, and it points forward to what's coming for Jesus. So at the miracle itself, Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, and once again, he's outraged. Perhaps he sees the crowd not believing. They had just said, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? But still, I think the main focus of his anger is on the death in the tomb. Jesus demands the stone be taken away. Doesn't that sound familiar? A tomb cut out of rock with a stone in front of it. Take the stone away. That is a hint of what is behind this. After four days now, Martha, she still doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do. So she has a practical objection here. Lord, if they do that, it's going to be uh, smelly. He is decomposing already here. Um, he's dead for four days. Now, four days is, is also significant because in that day, it seems that there was a common idea that for up to three days, the spirit of a man hovered around the body and was there for the funeral in the morning time. But once decomposition began, which was typically believed to happen on the fourth day, the spirit was out of there, gone completely untouchable. And so Jesus says, he doesn't um, you know, give credence to that belief, but he's, he's attacking that and, go, and letting the man be dead four full days, decomposition too, and Jesus' miracle, none of that matters. He's able to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
Jesus is undeterred. We will see the glory of God. Jesus' prayer does not ask for Lazarus to be raised. Instead, he thanks God. Now, why doesn't he pray for God to raise him? Because in John 5, which is underlying this, which is a key passage in John, this is what Jesus has already told us. John 5, 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So Jesus has the power to raise anyone from the dead that he wants and he will raise everyone to judgment and receive some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation one day at the last day. So Jesus wants this miracle to not only bless the family, he says he's praying, thinking of the people standing around. I love that phrase, the people standing around. There were people standing around, and Jesus was praying for them so that they would believe him. Jesus calls out, and some people wonder, well, why did he call out? Well, Jesus believes that Lazarus is still a person. He doesn't call him a corpse or the body. He says, let's go to him. And um, Lazarus was his friend, he had said. Let's go to him. Um, He's calling out. Lazarus is way back in the back of the tomb. And so he's calling out so Lazarus can hear. Some old-time preachers say that if Jesus didn't use the name Lazarus, Every dead person would come out of the tomb. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then when he comes forth, this is such a contrast to when Jesus rises again. When, when Jesus rises again, the linen wrappings are over in one heap over here, and then the napkin is folded over there. But not for Lazarus, poor guy. Um, now, don't think of a mummy. He's not wrapped like a mummy because he was decomposing. The way that they would do it, there would be a big sheet. It would be, it would be, it would, he would be laying on the sheet, and it would be draped over top of him. And then his arms would be tied to his body so that they wouldn't like fall off onto the floor in the tomb. And then his feet and ankles were bound together as well. And then there would be a separate napkin or a smaller cloth wrapped around the face for respect. So here he is. He's got all that stuff on. He's basically hobbling and jumping over here, getting out of the tomb, and he needs help. And how much different Jesus' resurrection was. He had a glorified body. He could get out of those wrappings himself without needing any help or assistance. Um, Lazarus, he's hopping around, and eventually he's going to hop right back into that tomb one day and die again. He's just given mortal life. Jesus has resurrection life forever. But it is a picture of Jesus' death to come. Then look at the response. Mary and Martha had their faith increased. He, his disciples did too. He said, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Because now you're going to see this miracle and really understand the power of who I am. So Jesus increases the faith of Mary and Martha and of the disciples. Mary and Martha are assured of Jesus' love for them. 
They were led to understand that Jesus is no mere teacher. He is God incarnate. Who else could raise the dead? The miracle acted out resurrection life being given by Jesus. And the miracle pointed to the fact that life comes from death and overcomes death. And we'll talk more on that in a minute. Mary gets all this and the next thing that she does is she anoints Jesus for burial. She understands that they've plotted for his death and she understands that he's going to die and rise again. Mary got it all. The disciples should better understand what Jesus is teaching about his imminent death now, but still they don't understand when he says, I'm going to rise again, that he doesn't need someone else to yell at him to get out, but he can do it himself. Now the response of the people standing around Some believed, some betrayed. Even the disciples, one of the guys at the tomb, Judas Iscariot. Can you imagine seeing the power of Jesus at the tomb, turning around, betraying Jesus just two chapters later? Some believed, some betrayed. And the religious leaders, wow, so this teacher just raised someone from the dead and it's attested by all these witnesses. How can we keep this quiet? This guy's got to be taken out. What kind of reaction is that? How obtuse and how sinful. This resurrection assured that Jesus' death from that day forward, and John, that's the pivotal day because of his death. In fact, It's possible that, um, and it says Lazarus is a marked man as well. It's possible that the other Gospels were written while Lazarus was alive. And that's why they don't mention the account. Because he still has a mark on his head. We don't know. But from that point on, that day. Now you can't tell me that Jesus doesn't know coming back to Jerusalem means he's going to raise Lazarus. And it means that that means the Santa the Sanhedrin is going to plot for him to die. So when Jesus decided to come and raise Lazarus, he was walking to his own death in anger at the fact that death is here at all affecting people. When he raised Lazarus, he was seeing his own resurrection to come. And then the sign. This is the climactic sign in John. It's in the center of the book, basically. There are six signs that precede it. This is the seventh sign. And it foretells the last sign, the greatest sign, of Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus left safety to come and reveal himself to this crowd and his special friends in Bethany. And the only way Lazarus could be raised and he and his sisters could truly be saved from death's power was by Jesus being willing to face death and enact his own resurrection. To raise Lazarus, Jesus had to look at his own coming death and accept it. His anger was toward the devil who loves death. And Jesus struck a mighty blow here and another mighty blow on the cross of Calvary. This story reveals the greatness of our Savior. He is God, able to raise people from the dead in power, And he is man able to weep at the grave of a friend. He is wise and true and he has a shoulder upon which you can cry. He is angry at sin and unbelief and the havoc that death and the devil has brought into this world. 
Jesus loves all of his children and cares for them in their trials. He knows what you're going through and he will be a rock for you. Trust him no matter what. He is life and resurrection life. If you are weighed down with burdens, just fall at his feet like Mary. If you are full of questions, come to Jesus for answers like Martha. If you are tempted to be cold toward God when trials come, know that he is a wonderful counselor and the God of all comfort. Don't be tricked into just masking your pain with games or drugs or harmful behaviors. Don't grow bitter and withdraw from God's church and fellow believers. Don't rest in a faith that knows who Jesus is but doesn't throw oneself at Jesus' feet in times of sorrow. If you are watching and hearing but don't know the true life, resurrection life that Christ offers, won't you believe? Will you believe? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Jesus has a reason for your sorrow and a purpose for your life. Jesus can provide eternal life if you forsake all and follow him in faith. Do you believe? For many of the children in our church, and perhaps some of the adults even in our pews, I fear we are content to know about Jesus, to learn facts about him, and even believe those facts, but stop short of fully trusting him. We are like the people standing around who have heard of Jesus. Wow, he can heal blind people. Cool. But we don't experience him in our life. You are called to make a decision. Will you believe and receive Jesus as Lord? Will you follow God's call to be baptized and to be an active member of his church? Or do you remain as just another person who stands around? Don't you want to be one who is his friend, one whom he loves? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for Lazarus and his story and Mary and Martha. I pray that you would transform our hearts. Call us to you. May those who are hearing your call respond. In Jesus' name, amen.